Hey guys, it's Michael James Wong, founder of Just Breathe. And before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on the new Just Breathe app. It's simple and easy to use with guided meditations, music, and soundtracks created and recorded specifically to calm the mind and ease the body. And now with the ability to customize the length of your practice. We've literally put the power of mindfulness in the palm of your hand, and even more, it's free. We've created this app as a way to support our growing community. And whether you're a regular meditator or it's brand new for you, know that Just Breathe is for anyone and everyone ready to step into a quieter conversation. Hi, I'm Holly Rubin. I'm a psychotherapist, mental health practitioner, body image specialist, and your host of Tough Love. So how do you see yourself when you look in the mirror? Or more specifically, how do you feel about how you look? Each week, I'll be looking into this concept, asking extraordinary women about their ever-evolving relationship with body image and how their experiences have shaped who they are today. From the world of motherhood to disability and everything in between, these are the women on a mission to change the relationship that women have with their bodies. Welcome to Tough Love. Today, I am joined by Michelle Elman, body confidence coach, an award-winning body positive activist who's on a mission to change the relationship women have with their bodies. Michelle struggled with body positivity for much of her life until she came to the realization that her body was actually fighting for her, not against her. In 2015, Michelle started the Scarred Not Scared campaign, which quickly went viral, opening up the conversation worldwide about scars and self-love. And if that wasn't enough, Michelle's TED TEDx talk on body positivity has been viewed over 40,000 times, and she recently published an already best-selling book called Am I Ugly? So welcome, Michelle, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. So tell me, tell me how, God, how this all began for you and your earliest memories of, of yourself physically and all of the challenges that you've been through. Can you tell me about that? I think I have really late early memories because I don't really remember much before the age of seven, which is quite unusual. But given the fact that by the age of seven, I'd already had, what, five surgeries? It's kind of, maybe it's repressed <laughs> part of my life. Um, but I just, rem- I remember coming across a photo of me um, when I was around that age and I was wearing a crop top and like was completely clueless to the world that I had these scars on my stomach and that it's it's very different when you see a seven-year-old kind of showing those scars. And I remember seeing the picture, never thinking anything about it. And it was in year six. So I guess that's a year that's like, what, 10 years old? Um, and we were making um, this like our final leaving primary school book. And I chose that as my favorite photo. Um, so that was like the first time I guess I like in hindsight looked back at my childhood and was like oh there was a point um but the memory that kind of came around the same time was the fact that I wore a bikini for the first time and I went it was a birthday party all my friends had started moving from one pieces to bikinis and um I guess there had never been a conversation around the fact that I had these surgeries and I had um not only the scars but this illness and so when I came out and I had all these scars on my stomach not only did the kids react but my friends reacted and so did the parents and there were looks of like shock and I think the main thing for me was pity I'm quite uh even at that age I was I'm quite a proud independent like for lack of a better word strong person mm-hmm. and I never wanted to be pitied um and I to this day I still think pity is worse than like anyone getting angry at me or like any of those kind mm-hmm. of emotions it's just like it inherently comes with looking down on someone mm. um and it comes with the message of I wouldn't want to be like you or I wouldn't like I wouldn't want that for myself. Um, And so I didn't know how to articulate it. I probably didn't even know the word pity at that age. All I knew was it didn't feel very good. And if my scars created that reaction, I didn't want to show them. Mm -hmm. And I so I didn't. I didn't talk about them. I didn't. I probably never had a conversation about my scars until um, or even my surgeries until I was. 17 and applying for university and then uh by that point I was to an extent body confident 
because I just stopped caring about my body like once you have the kind of scars I have on my body there is no way I could be beautiful no way I could be pretty and that was the like mentality I had at 15 years old so I was like well why don't I just stop trying and that sounds really negative but actually it meant that I put my time and energy into so many other areas of my life um, and then I realised that avoiding the conversation of my scars wasn't a long-term solution because if I wanted a relationship, mm. I would eventually have to show my scars to someone. Mm. And that's kind of how it started unpicking at like seven years, at 17 years old. I was like, I need to start talking about this and addressing it. And I had gone into hospital in the first year of primary and secondary school. So all my friends had always known about to an extent, my surgeries and university was also the first time I would have to explain mm -hmm. what happened to mm -hmm. me. And so the application process for university was nothing to do with university for me and all about this. And like, how do I tell this university professor that the reason why I want to study psychology is because of all of this without being able to talk about it? And so in all the university prep interviews for Oxford, because Oxford is the only one that... I applied to that had interviews um I couldn't stop crying mm. and so I was like okay there's something I need to handle or deal with here um but again even at 17 years old you think you're really old but you probably actually don't have the mental capacity or the language to describe experiences that realistically most people never go through yeah um and that's essentially like my journey with all of it mm. and I kind of even getting to the point where I could call it trauma was a really long, hard journey. Mm. And, and it sounds, I mean, that's really, really tough and something that, again, as you said, most people never endure, right? So I'm, I'm really interested, too, with the fact that up until that age, right, when you began to take notice, and mostly you took notice because of other people's reactions to you. Yeah. What was it like at home and what was it like with your parents and how did they manage that? Because clearly you must have had a good enough um, experience in that, that that you didn't take that so much, you know, that you yeah. didn't internalize that in the beginning so much. But I actually think all kids do. Like all kids aren't conscious of their body. They're not conscious from the moment that they're born no. that they're just a person. There's mm -hmm. not them and then their body. Mm -hmm, they definitely. are one. Yeah. And I think... I also have a brother who's like less than a year older than me. Like we're very close in age. And so we were kind of brought up like twins. Mm -hmm. um, and so whatever he could do, I could do. And my brother's never been into hospital, never had a surgery in his life. So that's how we were treated. And like it, the same way that if we both went to the beach, of course I saw, like, I. it's hard to describe, but I saw the difference. I just never recognised it. Like in the same way that like your sister could have a different eye color to you. Mm -hmm. Like I saw it, it just wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it wasn't something I particularly paid attention to. Um, and my parents, I don't know, do you, do you bring up the conversation and then potentially create an issue that doesn't exist? But the way my parents in hindsight, we've had conversations about it. They were like, well, you never seem to like have an issue around it. And then, what happened after I wore a bikini for the first time is I secretly started spending pocket money on scar reduction creeps. Mm. Um, and I thought if I applied enough, it would disappear. Um, and it was only when my mum discovered all of them that we actually had the first conversation about it. And because it was because I wanted plastic surgery to remove it. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, I was 10 years old. And so my dad was like, let's have this conversation again when we're like 15. Um, and we can have a talk about it but then by the time you get to 15 years old I'd had seven more surgeries and like I had kind of realized that plastic surgery is still surgery mm -hmm. and I'd have to return to the place that I dreaded most mm. in order to it's so ironic to get a surgery to remove surgery scars and I was like you know what I'd rather never go to a hospital ever again mm. than go through that pain again and I my dad was explaining to me at the time being like you know the like recovery process you went through you'd have to go through the same thing like they still have to it's really invasive in the same way and so that kind of was to be honest at 10 it actually kind of helped because I thought it was a temporary problem mm -hmm. that I could solve when I was mm -hmm. 15 but by the time I got to 15 that's kind of why it started with this okay now we actually have to start dealing with this because this is not a temporary problem mm -hmm. and I'm not going to have another surgery to remove this and even if I have to have another surgery in my life it's not going to be an optional one. Mm. It's just so interesting and I guess what I'm so 
fascinated by too in general, and clearly you must have been too if you've chose psychology to go into. What is the psychological impact of these physical scars? How that impacts us emotionally, right? So that was again that that beginning of how we define body image, really, which is how we feel about how we look. So it's not necessarily how we look, yeah, but how we feel about that. And yeah, how would you? I think if if you look at scars as um, markers of the worst trauma in your life and then realise you have to look at that in the mirror every single day, that, I think, was my biggest issue, was the fact that I, hadn't, I wasn't able to talk about my surgeries, but I couldn't look in the mirror without having a visual reminder of it. And so once I actually got okay with talking about my surgeries, my scars almost became like an added plus one that I didn't really need to deal with. Um, But until that point, I think the largest emotional and like psychological scar that I got left with was I thought I caused my surgeries. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, I believe, dangerous conversation in wellness and in health where it's so much placed on individual blame. Blame. And when you can't... um, I mean, sorry, the the cancer adverts plastered around London yes. are coming to mind right yes, now. Yes, which we can talk about for sure. Yeah. <laughs> or perhaps shouldn't because <laughs> it's been a week of just, I mean, you see them everywhere. And I'm just like, all I'm reminded of when I see those, but mm. also in general, is of an 11-year-old lying in a hospital bed, genuinely thinking when she got, the first thing I thought when I got diagnosed with brain tumour was if I'd eaten more spinach or broccoli, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And it came from two things. It came from, obviously, there's from a young age, even back then, people think it's only a recent thing, but even back then, there was always a conversation about weight and size and all of this stuff. But the other part of it was a phrase that people said in a really... Um, positive way that because I was a child I guess I misconstrued and that was everything happens for a reason so my Mm. brain was trying to find out the reason and Mm. I thought it was because of you it was because of me and even if it wasn't for for some reason it was always if I ate more spinach and if I drank more milk which I think is quite if you think about um, the diet conversation or the health conversation at a five-year-old level it's always like drink your orange juice drink more milk like eat your spinach like so I had that very um well childish mentality of like health but like that was age appropriate Mm -hmm. and so that's what my brain translated it as and so I guess the psychological impact is that for a long time uh, particularly until I got diagnosed with PTSD my whole life became about trying to compensate for being a bad person because that's essentially what I thought I was Mm. Um, because everything happens for a reason. Mm. Therefore, Mm. like, there was a reason I deserved this and that's how I translated it in my head. And it's... The logic, eh, that that one uses as as a child. I I remember the lady when, literally, when I was like this over my mother's arm, I remember she was doing this to me, like, like, naughty girl. You know, you're in the hospital, right? What did you... Whatever you're... Whatever, yeah. whatever the reason is that you're here, it's because you did it. Yeah. And that image, same, you know, it just, we we carry that with us. And I don't think, like, it's necessary. I think if someone had said something different, maybe that would have been the thing I had created in my head. But I, for me still, I just don't think everything happens for a reason is a very positive thing mm-hmm. to say to a child because mm-hmm. the child will misconstrue it. Hmm. And that and that just that wasn't the case, yeah, right? It wasn't the case. And in fact, what you've been able to do and how you've been able to manage everything that's happened to you is the piece that we should be focusing on, right? And the yeah. the success with which you've managed and the work. It doesn't just happen, right? You've yeah. had to go through all this. I'm sure you've had to really, you know, unpick a lot of the emotional yeah. stuff that goes along with with physical. It's so much about. Um... And I just don't think there's enough conversation around childhood illness without it having the survivor aspect or the inspirational aspect because so much of it is about like trying to figure out everything in hindsight because you didn't have the resources to be able to explain at the time. And so you're piecing together memories that are so vague just simply because of the age, but then also with... I don't know, for me at least, when I first started going to therapy for it, and it was probably way later than it should have been, but 
I was everything I was saying was actually everything that had been said around me about my surgeries. Mm -hmm. So every time when I did start talking about my surgeries, it was almost like I was replaying the version how my mum used to tell it to friends. So like I would overhear how she said it and I would just say the same thing. And I wasn't sure how I felt about it myself. It was just and my mum is like a very big personality and she says it with like a lot of humour and like then like a drama and she's just like a brilliant storyteller. So I used to tell it in the same way and I would love to get the reaction from the room and then I was like, wait, hold on. But did I actually feel that way? Mm-hmm. And um, it took a long time to actually ask myself how I felt about it. Mm. And, and how did you feel about it? Uh, the first thing that came up was a lot of anger. Um, and I think an- another sentence that was said a lot in hospital, I was in hospital in America, and like they are a lot more... Uh, Verbal? <laughs> well, focused on positivity <laughs> than we are here. We're allowed a bit more... Um, room. Room yeah, to room. be angry. And so... It was always, don't cry, like, you've got the best care in the world. You're so lucky to have the best care in the world. And so every time I felt bad about something, I felt guilty for being feeling bad about something. So I was never allowed my anger. I was never allowed my sadness. And I was a very angry child. Like, I, um, I mean... <laughs> I I think I had a right to be. Yeah, I had exactly. 15 surgeries by yeah. the time I like... Well, I had 13 surgeries by the time I was 11. Yeah. Um, and so I was... Uh, there were mistakes that had happened. I was allowed to be angry about that, but we like I w- I only became angry about that at twenty one, mm-hmm. and I was like, but because the storyline around that that I was told from the nurses and the doctors was, oh, it's you're you should be so grateful that your intestine got punctured, otherwise we would have never found the brain tumor. Oh god! So them making a mistake, causing me my most invasive surgery, was the only reason we found a brain tumor. Therefore, I'm not allowed to be angry about. Any of it, and you, though, and you have to be lucky, yeah, right. And you and you have to consider yourself lucky and all that. And for anyone who like understands PTSD or like a psychological background, every person going through similar experiences already has survivor guilt. Mm-hmm. So it was just compounding that. Um, and for people who don't know, survivor's guilt is simply like when you survive a situation like that. And even though it sounds a bit weird in my context because there were no other people involved, but genuinely just the um, other kids in the ICU, like watching some kids die, watching some kids being able to leave the situation and then being angry that they got to leave before you, but then also being sad because the kid next to you just died and you haven't yet. Um, all of that got compacted by, compounded by the fact that I was told I should be lucky and grateful. Yes. Um, and so it was first anger and then it was definitely a feeling around a lost childhood. Um, and that was like quite a long phase of realising that like, I don't think I've ever been innocent in the same way a child should be or um I don't think I don't remember running around the playground actually just enjoying myself I remember running around and worried that if I trip and fall over I'm gonna bang my head and die Mm -hmm. um and that was from what seven years old like Mm -hmm. I remember being like oh I can't do that because I'm gonna hurt my head and end up in hospital Mm -hmm. um that's a lot to carry that's a real lot and it's a lot to unpick after like And then on top of that, because I think there's a lot of shame around mental health, the thing that I kept saying was, it's been 10 years, why am I crying about it now? Like, it's been 10 years, um, it shouldn't be an issue, I've been fine for the last 10 years. And I think a general thing that a lot of people go through when they first go to therapy is like, worrying that they've lost... The question I kept saying is like, I want to go back to being me, Mm -hmm. because the me I had created was the happy, positive person who was laughing all of the time and I remember one of my friends it was about a week before I had uh, the moment that triggered my PTSD and he had said to me you laugh more in a day than I do in a month and that became the um, beating stick that I used against myself for the whole therapy journey being like I need to go back to the person who lasts more in a day than someone else lasts Mm -hmm. in a month and if I've lost that Mm -hmm. then who am I Mm -hmm. and if I lose that if I lose, if I actually work on all of these issues, I don't know who I'm going to become at the end of this journey. And I'm not sure I want to know that person because there's no guarantee you're not going to stop being angry. There's no guarantee you're mm-hmm. not going to stop crying every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was a long, complicated journey. And I think it's funny because I talk about all of this now in hindsight. 
And so a lot of people think it was easy and a lot of people think that like I was born this way and that in terms of like being very positive and happy. And I was like, you should have seen me when I was yelling and screaming and crying and going through PTSD because you can come that far. And I wish I had known when I was going through it that I would have the life I have now today because I actually had a point where I was like, I'm not sure this is ever going to end. Mm, absolutely. And, and I guess you've... It's really hard and nobody nobody's walked in your shoes, right? So you can't know um, your journey. You can't know anybody else's. But the fact yeah. that you're sharing it and the fact that you have come through the other side in a way that you're using your own experience and you're being able to teach others and, and heal from that also, I think, is really, it's um, it's it's great. And it's also such a fantastic model. When I think about um, body positivity and, and role models, um, who are they now and where do we find them and how do we um, have the younger generation look up to certain people who are embodying experiences that, you know, I, I certainly know I want the younger generation to have. And um, you definitely represent that. So I, th I think just we're grateful to see that out there. Thank you. Hey, guys. Don't forget to check out what else is going on in the Just Breathe community. Now, if you're in London, join us as we bring hundreds of people together for our cultural events, mass meditations, and grand gatherings. Or join our intimate monthly quiet clubs for an evening of community, connection, and quiet. Just Breathe is a place where everyone is welcome and everyone belongs. Now, if you're not in London, don't worry. There's more events coming soon all over the world. So check out the website to find out more and see some highlights from our past events, and of course, the details for what's coming up soon near you. Visit JustBreatheProject.com and join the community on Instagram at JustBreathe. Tell me about um, the title I found of your TEDx so interesting. So have you hated your body enough? I think it's a really good question um, and something that an expression I use a lot, which is, uh, how much time we wasted on skinny. Yeah. You know, it's almost, it's, it made me think of that when I when I watched you and I read that. What what do you mean exactly? And why did you choose that as your title to talk about? So it's, I think it's something like 97 or 98% of people have a I hate my body moment every single day. Can you imagine how much time and energy in one day alone that you could be contributing towards something productive in your life. Like if you want to work on your love life, put that energy towards that. If you want to work on your career, put your energy towards that. But just focusing on your body has no productive outcome because realistically what you're actually trying to do is get closer to a beauty ideal. Mm -hmm. And even though people don't like to admit it, we are all going to slip out of that beauty ideal no matter how close you are at, in your 20s. By the time you get 40, most older women are practically invisible when it comes to the beauty ideal. Um, and so it's something you like. we all have to reckon with, but also realise that it's not something you got born with and something that you got taught along the way. And it's from people who are profiting off of you. Mm -hmm. People profit off you having those insecurities. And it also means you're diminishing your power around it. Because as long as you're worrying about your body and the size you are, you're not like working on your career. You're not going to stand up as much in your relationship. You're not going to stand up at work as much because you will always have that feeling of not good enough the entire time. And you can literally translate that about your body to any other area of your life. But the thing with your body, it's almost like the most permanent excuse you have because you take your body wherever you go. So let's say um, there's a statistic which is 17% of people who are um, who don't like their body won't turn up to a job interview on that yeah. day. Exactly. And the or thing girls that, won't raise their hands in class yeah. to answer a question because they don't feel good enough about how they look. But the thing with the job interview thing is that I'm like, but how much of the, that 17% were actually just too scared to turn up to the job interview? Like, and weren't, weren't um, in touch enough with themselves to just admit that it was fear. Mm. And it's so much easier to be like, I'm too ugly to go than to actually be like, I'm scared and there's a chance I actually get rejected from this and that might actually hurt mm -hmm. and actually processing all of that as a and I just think sometimes your body becomes a cop out and it's like oh I'm too ugly I just won't go and so it's 
it's the easiest thing that, and also the first thing that I think especially women use to stop living their life. And when I got into life coaching, I got told like, no one should be a life coach because you should choose a specialized area and that all of this. And as I was working with like all kinds of different clients, all I saw, especially with women, was that the body became the first like obstacle before they even went and dealt with any other area of their life. So there was like one woman who, um, her main concern was being too tall and I, as I dug further and further into her life actually the fear was around standing out and so in her job she didn't want to stand out and I was like it's funny if you look at the language as well how it's so literal mm-hmm. that your fear is of being too tall mm-hmm. and that she hated being too tall but she also hated standing out and work and so I said to her like if you got better with being standing out do you think you'd worry about your height as much and I think that's the way we need to start looking at body insecurities rather than um changing it or fixing it because to be honest most of the time it's a temporary solution and with a lot of things like height you can't do anything to Mm. change it I mean if you're too short you can wear heels but if Mm. you're too tall what are you going to do just not live your life for the rest of your life because you got born with a certain set of gen- genetics and who taught you that being t- a tall woman is a bad thing in the first place and i and i think it's such a relative thing as well because I, I say that I've lived here in the UK for 18 years but i grew up i was one of the tallest now i'm all of you know 5 2 and a half so of our group of friends, I happen to be, that's the irony. When yeah. I moved to England, I certainly <laughs> I was the shortest of the bunch. But look at that, right? It's all relative. It's all who you happen to be around. It's surrounded by both physical and, and the, the messages that we're given and what that means and how that gets communicated has an impact on us all. This area happened to be one where, you know, I didn't have an insecurity around yeah. that. But I had, of course, as we all do, we have insecurities around many other things. So I think it's um, I agree with you that the physical self, you know, tends to be that receptacle for all the negativity and it's easy to blame. Yeah. And it's and it, this idea of almost separating the two, separating your physical self and your emotional, spiritual self, putting them really on two ends and being able to realize that that poor soul, that poor body, right? How yeah. much negativity does it get and how much anger and frustration? And it does end up holding, I think, so much of, as you say, fear and so much of anguish and nervousness that wouldn't it be wonderful if, if some of that could be taken away and be able to, first of all, neutralized a little bit, I think would be really helpful. Yeah. But also just recognizing that that the body is the vehicle with which, you know, we, we go through life and how abled, disabled, whatever body we happen to be in, the fact that we're able to go through life in this is is miraculous. So it's not always what we think. It's not yeah. always where we go. But to be able to be conscious and maybe undo some of the learning that we have been given and taught would all hold us in pretty good stead, I think. Yeah. And I think it's also the energy that it, or the energy and the passion behind what I do in terms of the fact that um, there were multiple moments in my life where I could have lost my life during these 15 surgeries. And hearing, especially shortly after each hospitalization, when you come out into the world, you're you're so grateful for everything. Like every experience, like walking on grass is a new experience. You're, I, I compare it to being a newborn where like the world is this fascinating place. Um, and one of the things that was getting to me, um, and I guess this was the beginning of me starting to feel my anger around it, was people complaining about their bodies. Because I was like, do you know how lucky you are to mm-hmm. have a body? Do you know like how quickly this could be taken away from you? Mm-hmm. And that no matter what you think you're justified in for hating your body, your body is literally keeping you alive every single day. And that's all it needs to do. Like there was no job qualification in order to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. The job qualification is to keep you like breathing every day and it's mm-hmm. fulfilling its job. Mm-hmm. But can you imagine... If you were, if your body was a person, a separate person, it trying to do its best every single day, and you continually going, that's not good enough, that's not good mm-hmm. enough, um, and that's what we do to our bodies every mm-hmm. day is they do their best, no matter what their best is, whether that's you being disabled or limited mobility. I have limited mobility in my shoulders from my surgeries, um, and that was one thing I used to always like. I can't even tie my hair up in the morning and get really annoyed about that, and I was like 
my body has literally has survived 15 surgeries. Mm -hmm. Most people who've survived 15 surgeries don't have as much morbidity as I have. And it's still trying to do its best, even when it's holding me back from the things I want to do in life, like tie my hair up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And I think also, when I think about body images, it is not just specific to, you know, a lot of people say, if I say, well, I work with body image right away. The the response is, oh, so you work with eating disorders. I say, well, that's an element of it, but it's not all of it. And I, and I'm always trying to give the message that we all have relationship with our bodies and we all have, um, experiences that everywhere from, you know, being a pregnant mother or pregnant woman to, um, being, uh, I mean, it just runs the gamut from adolescence to burn victims to amputees. To, there's so many times where we have to evaluate how we sit and how we feel in our bodies. And it's not not just in those specific category categories, but we go through that throughout our lives. You know, the, the changes in our body make us feel a certain way and how we address those. And that's where on sometimes we have to split the psychological and the physical of the body, but at the same time, we also have to notice how much they impact each other. We're talking mental health. When we talk about body image, it's talking about how we feel and, and how much that can set us back. And that's why also within body positivity, I think it's really important for it to be intersectional where like you're also talking about race and you're also talking about sexuality because that comes into play when it comes to your body. Um, And, um, gender dysmorphia and that kind of thing, especially with trans people, um, and that though all those conversations need to be just as important as the weight conversation um, or the size conversation, and that's where with my book Am I Ugly, a lot of people are like, this isn't a body positive book, and I was like, what? Because I talk about illness instead of talking about weight, and there is a chapter in it where I talk about weight, but people see body positivity as just a weight issue Mm. and then get to my book and they're like, oh, wait, you struggled with your scars more than you struggled with being fat. And I'm like, yes, because I wasn't fat the majority of my life. Mm. Whereas, like, I've had my scars since I was one years old. Mm. Um, And people find that really hard... um, to navigate because I think the conversation of body positivity has focused on size for a really long time mm-hmm. that and because the majority of insecurities are weight related people often don't think about other insecurities whether that be freckles or grey hair or whatever whatever your insecurity is even though it might seem like you're the only person in the world going through it and like I definitely did when it came to scars I was like I'm, I didn't see a scar until I was 21 years old out of a hospital setting um your insecurity is not unique. There is someone else in the world who is worrying about that exact same thing. And there are people in the world with that exact same, um, not insecurity or imperfection, but physical attribute that is absolutely okay with it and is yeah. can be a perfect example of the fact that you can get okay with it. In the same way we were talking about that woman who is like, um, worried about being too tall. There are so many tall women in the world who love their height. Mm-hmm. So if they exactly. can, you can too. And you can use it as a positive um, example and also encouragement to get to that place mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. And I and I think that's true. Again, back to relativity, right? What it is, what are we told? What messages are we given from an early age about what's beautiful, what's not beautiful, where we find shame, where we can break away from that? So. Um, but I I also think that people, you know, it's a very nuanced conversation, which isn't being had at that depth and at that level. So for people to go right away and, and see this as a weight issue yeah. is very limited, right? We do need to have these kinds of conversations where we can open that, open that dialogue up a little bit more and say, you know what, actually, my first experience was with, it was in a at the Montreal General Hospital with um, at a transsexual unit on a trans unit where people were coming in and wanting sex reassignment surgery. Now, this is 23 plus years ago. And in order to have that, in order to be granted that surgery, they needed to have a year where they were living in the other person's body, essentially. So taking hormones and dressing as though they were the other gender that they were the other sex that they were wanting the assignment for. And that was the first time actually where I was really cognizant around just how important that timing needs to be for 
for people to have the chance to actually understand what this change is going to mean. And I think that's something that's really, really important, too, in terms of how quick we are to change, how quick we are to think that what I look like right now isn't good enough, where, again, that messaging is societal, but how am I going to get out of it, right? How am I going to change it? Because where I am isn't good enough. And sort of brings me to plastic surgery and and the push button culture that says, well, I can go into super drug over, you know, my lunchtime break yeah. and I can do something about it now. And it doesn't mean that I'm doing it with the most professional people, but I'm going to go and have it done because it's really, really important. What is your, um, what's your view on that? Because it's important. Well, I do think um, to your beginning point around the fact that there's no nuance in this conversation the internet is the worst place for nuanced, complex conversation. And a lot of the captions I write on Instagram are trying to inject some more nuance into this conversation. But again, it's just not the format, especially on an image-based platform like Instagram. Um, and, Worst for our mental health. Eh? Yeah, and yeah. it's what, it's partially why I wrote my book, because I was like, that's the, like, I need you for 300 pages to actually be able to have this nuanced conversation with you. And I just think, for me, when it comes to plastic surgery, the day that I closed the door on the option of having plastic surgery to remove my scars was the day I finally accepted my scars. And I didn't love them. I didn't think I was beautiful. In fact, I probably accepted the fact that I was going to be ugly for the rest of my life. I don't believe that anymore, <laughs> which I get that question quite a lot because of the book title. Um, but I did just accept it. But it meant I stopped trying to change it. And I think... There's one of two options. You go down the fast, quick fix route of, okay, well, if I, if it is an option like, oh, I don't like my boobs because they're too small, let's get a boob job, fix it. The thing is that feeling that is causing you to want to get a boob job isn't going to disappear right. by an external thing. Right. So you getting a boob job, most people who get a boob job within a year will want another surgery. Whether they get it or not is a different conversation. Mm -hmm. But making plastic surgery more accessible and not giving people, not making it compulsory to have the time to think about it means that, of course, they're going to choose that option because it's the less painful option. And if they think it's the solution, which, by the way, it's not, um, then they're going to take that option in the same way that people take would rather take a diet pill from a celebrity influencer versus Not actually... mentioning any names, right? <laughs> no, no. I mean, to be honest, there are so many that <laughs> it would be the whole podcast. Um, versus them actually, like, implicating healthy habits that have nothing to do with weight. And that is what the research actually shows, is that if you implement healthy habits, the mortality rate, no matter what weight class you're in, will level out, the, uh, whether you're overweight, underweight or normal class, overweight levels out to the same mortality rate as normal if you implement four healthy habits. And that's, um, this is a study from 2012, uh, a varied diet, so not a restricted one, which is what majority of these diets are about, um, but a varied one. So literally just having a diverse range of, range of nutrients, um, quitting smoking, cutting down on alcohol, so you don't even need to cut it out, and moderate exercise. Um, and if you implement all of those, you will reap the same health benefits and your health risk will lower to the same level as normal weight, even if your weight doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And this is the research that's not being publicised. Mm -hmm. And as much as I was quoting a 2012 study, these studies have been coming out since the 70s. Yeah. And they aren't publicised as much because you can't capitalise off them exactly. um, in the yeah. same way. And people love a clickbait title mm -hmm. and people love a quick fix solution and people love oh, well, if I just cut out cheese, then I'm it, it'll fix everything. And I'm like, no, why don't you actually do it without having a result in mind in mm -hmm. terms of the scale? Mm -hmm. um, because you'll get the result anyway. And an example I use is um, with uh, exercise. So one of the worst, one of the best things for my body positive journey was exercising and moving my body. And I only started doing it after my last hospitalization. 
And it was literally because the ability to walk was taken away. I was bedridden for six weeks. And all I wanted to do was run as soon as... And I was never a runner. And I don't know why I just got this urge to Mm -hmm. run. And through that, and I called it my YOLO summer, where I spent the entire summer doing, like, everything that scared me. And exercise was one of the things that scared me. And uh, paddleboarding, wakeboarding. I went back to horse riding. Like, all these amazing things. You let your body do all the things that you... Yeah, you didn't Were really scared of. Mm Because they... To me, it was an exercise. It was things that could make me go back into hospital. That's how I viewed it. Mm. Um, And so it makes me sad a lot of people don't move their body because of diet culture and um, because it's been equated to calories so much. So the example I tend to use is if you want to work on your fitness or your health in general, um, we all know exercise helps. So let's say you make a goal of working out three times a week. If you do that with weight in mind and you get to the end of the week, and you've not lost weight on the scale, which majority of the time does happen because you gain muscle, Yeah, you will have counted that week as a failure. Yeah. Whereas if you actually had health in mind, then and that health was the goal, not weight, uh, weight loss, then if you went three times to the gym that week, that's an automatic pass. And so this diet culture, this weight-related um form of exercise creates this pass fail mentality that Mm -hmm. doesn't exist if you actually had health as a priority and Mm -hmm. so like I really don't buy a lot of these conversations in the public where it's like but we just care about your health because I'm like the statistics are out there the research is out there what you actually want to do is you want to create a moral superiority over any fat person in the world because you're also not thinking about the fact that um medications and illnesses cause weight gain and there are multiple illnesses out there that one of the main uh, symptoms is weight gain so why are you not helping those people it's very challenging with respect to the physical the physical element in terms of fitness right and what are the what's the messaging around fitness now I'm someone who's always been very active needing to be active now part of that is because my body needed to move and but also I needed that for my head I needed that because my mind is very busy and I remember learning that when I was physical, I, I felt that there were times where I'd be able to take a breath and realize that my, my head and my body were actually in the same space. And without the exercise, I wouldn't necessarily get that. So that was something I learned really early on also, how important the physical, just release and the physical aspect of being in my body. Dancers talk same, about it. Yeah. Same experience for me. So I... It's weird because, like, I didn't understand why running was specifically the thing that I was craving for six weeks. Mm. Um, but what ended up happening when I finally was able to start running, because it, it's a long process coming out of hospital with abdominal surgeries, mm. was that my mind went quiet when I ran. And my mind is never quiet. And to this day, my mind is not quiet unless I'm running. Um, and I found other places like dance class and things like that do that do a similar thing. But mm-hmm. running is mm-hmm. just the only thing in the world and I'm like but no one gets to the point of actually being able to experience that and that took me three months to be able to experience the first proper 20 minute run without stopping because all of this other rubbish gets in the way and I'm like but it's not about that and um it's so sad because if you and the way you that you said um I like I need to we all needed to as a child like that's if you look at any child if they've been kept in the house the whole day they will like be so annoyed Mm -hmm. because they need to go out and run they need to go out and move their body we all have that within us Mm -hmm. um but when we put so much shame around it it's not a fun process and there's another thing that I tend to say which is like you used to love riding a bike before you riding your bike before you called it spinning and you used to love dancing Mm. in the kitchen before you called it zumba Mm -hmm. but again it's another way of capitalizing it and essentially turning movement into work because I mean we we even call it a workout Mm -hmm. um and I'm like but what about the fun what about actually going into the park and kicking a football around not because you're good at it not because you want to become a football player but simply because it's fun so we we extricate the joy right there we, we we don't find that anymore and I think it's a very similar point to, again, around diets and, you know, prescribing what it is we are supposed to eat in order to get somewhere or we have to do this many classes in order to get that or you're, 
you know, your BMI is going to be changed if you do X amount of sit-ups. I mean, all this ridiculousness yeah. around and the messaging that that is so distorted. And we end up picking that up and believing that those are things that we are we need to do in order to fulfill this idea. I mean, it's not even like exact exercise. Like one of the things that I've been talking about is that exercise is actually not necessary, but movement is. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've been doing, I've I've really injured my back like a few months ago. um, And so I'm working back into exercise, but like slowly. And I've started taking the steps and I live on the 10th floor. Mm. So every day I've been taking the steps up. And I went to Knightsbridge Station the other day. And so after adding the steps to my apartment, I've started adding the steps to the tube. And like all my followers are like, you're mad. Like there are two rows of escalators either side of you staring at you. And I'm like, but that's like, I use that as positive motivation. But if I do that and I've done that, what, on average two or three times a day, that's raising my heart rate. That actually is like so good. And the reason why I'm doing the stairs is because it's actually building um, my calf muscles. So it's doing that. And I don't need to be in Mm -hmm. a gym. Like we've glorified the hour long session in the gym and we've removed the basic movement that a lot of us used to have a lot more of before there was a nine to five job. So like if you ask most people, they were way more active as a child. They were way more active as a teenager, even in university until you start your nine to five job and then you're like oh well I have to do the hour in the gym and I was like I'm trying to talk about like different types of movement and also different types of sports so for my birthday I'm like I'm forcing all my friends to go paddle boarding with me and they all think I'm like wild and I'm like it's because we're all we've got boring with the type of like movement we do I'm like it doesn't have to be the gym you don't have to get on the treadmill you could literally go paddle boarding in the middle of London like how incredible is that trust me it'll be a better workout (laughs) than anything you're going to do in the gym exactly but that's not the typical it it, it doesn't have the punitive effect right and I think that that is there's no question that that's what the gym has become or the boot camp or the you know instructor yelling at you to do more that's never been a motivator for me right I think a lot of people (laughs) no a lot of people think that that's what they require in order to be getting quote-unquote a good workout and that's was never something that that worked for me or I would ever you know, want to see someone doing to somebody else. I think also if you look at a lot of the messaging, the no pain, no gain mentality, Mm -hmm. the if someone slows down in an exercise class, it's because they're being lazy, not because they're trying to not injure themselves. And especially when it comes to people like me, if I'm slowing down, it's because I have a higher chance of injuring myself than anyone else in that room because of my surgeries. And so we shouldn't make assumptions and we shouldn't be motivating via shame because... Mm -hmm. And I think those people who do love to be yelled at in a class are, have probably had too much shame in their life. And so it's it's not the fact that they like it, it's the fact that they're familiar to it. And that familiar feels like comfort inside their body without realising that actually it's just perpetuating, perpetuating the shame that already exists in our society around bodies. And that you, do, you can genuinely work out, not because you want to change your body, but because you enjoy it and it's fun and you love your body and you don't want to change it but you can enjoy working out simply for the fact that it's a lot of fun and you used to enjoy it as a child and why can't we not bring that back um and that's what makes me sad because it's a missed opportunity to actually associate in your body and I especially think when it comes to fatter women everything in society is geared towards disassociating from your body because it's like a horrible place to live in a world when you're fat Mm. and so like you disassociate from that part of you Mm -hmm. but running or going to a dance class especially when you put your phone away is actually the first time you can actually check in with your body and Mm. like you can feel your limbs moving and especially when I'm running I tend to like do a bit of a body scan and be like okay how my my um legs doing how's my knees doing Mm -hmm. And that's a healthier way of working out than what I used to do, which was run to a time limit or run to a calorie burn. Usually it would be like, okay, I need to burn off the chocolate bar I had Mm -hmm. at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. And that meant I was overriding my body's signals, telling me to stop. And that's actually a lot of the reason why I got injured. And so this whole mentality of like, there's never a workout you're going to regret. I always go, there is a workout you're going to regret. The one way you injure yourself is the one you regret. And you will spend six months in rehab or in, um, uh, in physio, Rehab meaning rehabilitation, not like rehab. Yeah. Um, trying to undo the damage you did if you had just listened to your body when your body was screaming at you to stop. Absolutely. And I think that's so important, not just in the exercise world, but just 
in terms of food and intake and how do we become more connected to our physical selves and our bodies and how do we begin to pick up that messaging? How do we listen to ourselves to eat when we're hungry, to stop when we're full, to really be mindful about what an appetite is, what it feels like? Because that, sadly, that is something that people lose very quickly in terms of that um, understanding about physical um, messaging. And it's with a lot of, it's with rest as well. How many people do you see who um, will like flippantly say they're workaholic, but actually what they're doing is overriding their body, telling them that they need to sleep more and they need to rest. But we shame people who are lazy in society and we over glorify being busy. Mm -hmm. um, And therefore you don't listen to that. And when Mm -hmm. it comes to food, like essentially every diet is telling you, a plan, a calorie intake, and all of that is not to do with your hunger signals. And that's why the only thing I ever promote is intuitive eating, because your body is smarter than any calculator you can find, any fitness app, all of these things. Mm. And what people don't understand is that your body fluctuates. So like this whole mentality of like, but why am I hungry? I just ate. If that was thirst and that was water, you and you just drank a glass of water and you were still thirsty you wouldn't go well why am I thirsty I just had a a glass of water I don't deserve another Mm. but we do that with food all the time Mm. and I'm like it could literally just be your period Mm -hmm. it could be the fact that you worked out more today um, and your body is telling you it needs more food Mm -hmm. or your body is telling you to stop eating but then because you've deprived yourself via a diet your body is now going no no, no, I'm going to keep eating more before you take this away again and your body like your brain is so smart um but we think we're more intelligent in terms of your body is so smart and we think we're more intelligent in fact in the term in terms of the fact we all have a set point weight and so if your set point weight is higher than the beauty ideal say and that could be for a number of reasons. That could have been illnesses that changed your set point weight. That could have been previous diets that's changed your set point weight. You keep battling against that rather than accepting that's where your body is meant mm-hmm. to be sitting mm-hmm. um, weight-wise. And that's different for every person. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking about food all day, every day, it's probably because you're not eating enough. Mm-hmm. And that's why these thoughts are coming into your head because, again, your body's trying to protect you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, I've been... Very interested in in an idea recently that seems to be popping up in my um, in my patients, and I'm really interested in in exploring it a little more. But it's this idea of diet culture and what it's done to us all, and trying to look at that a little bit from a different perspective and trying to understand the reasons behind it, and instead of blaming and being so angry with it, which we are and we should be, there is something that's been really interesting to me and seems to be coming up more and more, which is this notion of comfort that diets have given people over all these years, that there is something that is containing and comforting in a structure and in something that's predictable. And it ends up being used in a way of um, to allay anxiety and to allay worry around keeping things all together. Now, it's not necessarily positive, but it is. it has made me begin to understand its importance in a way that I haven't really understood it before. I think the other aspect that comes into play is uh, community. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at a lot of these weight loss exactly. groups, you're meeting up once a week. And exactly. as a society, we're becoming less and less religious. And I'm not a religious person, nor do I promote it because I don't think you should push on other people's beliefs. But without that sense of community and because we are, there are more people working remotely and there are more people staying at home and all of these things... Um, to have that sense of community of people who understand you. Yeah. And if you actually, there are a lot of books talking about this out, that diet culture is actually very close to religion in terms of how it's set out, that mm. there are principles that you follow and that there are the sinners. And I mean, literally one diet group, I won't name it, but literally uses the word sin as their calorie counting mechanism, mm. um, which, what does that tell you about shame around food? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um that creates that sense of community and Mm -hmm. so it creates that sense of being understood and I also think Mm -hmm. it provides people not only with a moral superiority because they're doing something about it but it gives them 
satisfaction knowing that they're working on themselves. Mm. Um, and so they it, they feel good about themselves in a temporary way because they're like, well, I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they're being proactive, but they don't know how much the scales are weight. Not <laughs> that was an unintended pun, but like the like everything is weighing against them because, as the statistics show, they are literally the desi- diets are designed to fail. Absolutely, um, and so then we start pushing the idea of, oh well, you're it's willpower. You're not strong enough, yeah. and then again you're marketing off of the back of shame. Definitely. And so the person then, so you go onto the diet feeling that temporary one week, maybe you've lost weight the Mm -hmm. first four weeks. Sure. And then you feel that shame. And so you think, what's the solution? Mm -hmm. The shame usually leads to you falling off the bandwagon. Yeah. And then what's the solution? Okay, if I go back on it. And it's almost that like addictive cycle. Sure. Um, And so... I think it provides a lot of things and it's very understandable why a lot of people go to it. Um, but ultimately, that feeling of not being enough exactly. that, start, that led you to that first meeting, right. that led you to going to a diet, right. is not going to be fixed by a physical change. No, no. And you can look at, I mean, everyone thinks that the solution to body confidence is changing your body. But I'm like, there are tons of fat people out there who are really confident. There are tons mm-hmm. of thin people out there who are really insecure. Mm-hmm. There are tons of people with a disability who are absolutely fine with the way that they look. Yep. So if you think changing your body is suddenly going to become the solution, then you're going to spend, or worse, you're going to spend 10 years on a diet thinking that's the solution. You're going to get a really like rude awakening when you land up in hospital close mm-hmm. to on your dead deathbed with all of these regrets of things that you never did because you thought life started mm-hmm. after that 10 pound weight loss yeah. when actually life start has already started and you like you're putting your own life on pause yeah. um, and that's ultimately like the main passion I have behind it all the work that I do is that there are very few people in the world who almost lost their life at 11 years old that's a really young age and so I almost have the perspective of like a 90 year old but from 11 where I'm like I didn't get a second chance at life. I got like a fifth chance at life. Mm. And to be honest, after the second chance at life, all it made me do was be scared of everything. Mm. So it literally took me going to hospital a few more times and then going, wait, hold on, I'm just wasting time. Um, And so one of the main things I say is like, you shouldn't have to go through that pain Mm. or the experiences I went through in order to get that lesson. And yes, I'll always have that lesson to a greater extent because it's emotional for me. But it's so sad to me that like there are people who end up in the same position I had when I was 11 but don't make it out Mm. of hospital to Mm -hmm. be able to fix that and I got the chance to fix that and change that and change the rest of my life Mm. Um, and all of my job and the things that I've created have come out of the fact that I'm like I still have time so I'm going to make the most of it. Is there a word that people use to describe you that you wish they would not use? (sighs) The first word, there are a lot, but the first one that came to mind when you asked that question was strong. Because I think sometimes strong doesn't give people the permission to not necessarily be weak, but be human. Mm. And um, I get praised a lot for being strong. And I'm currently in a phase of my life where I don't want to be strong. I want to be human. And I want to be able to have my emotions without my brain going, oh, you're not being strong and everyone's relying on you to be strong. And so I, I don't personally like the idea of like the strong friend or like everyone says like you're really tough as a compliment, but I'm like, hmm. <laughs> it's Does that not put pressure good, on you? Yeah, it's mm. not always a good thing. Mm. And it's not something we should be praising in society mm. because strong to me equates hiding your emotions. Mm. Interesting. And again, yeah, pressure, right? That you yeah. need to, which means if you're strong, you're always meant to be. And that's, yeah. you can't, you can't always be everything, anything. So um, if someone were looking for you and you went missing and they were desperate to find you, how would you describe yourself to them in order that they could locate you? I think the main thing someone would say is like you can hear her laugh from a mile away so they'd probably find me because I'd be laughing somewhere. I, I have a like when I properly start laughing I have like the most unique laugh that people think it's fake um, and it's like it's just such an unfiltered laugh and I like I never realised how weird it was until like I started recording myself in so many areas. But that's probably how um, 
someone would find me just by hearing me first. And I think that's quite a common thing. It's like you hear me before you see me. <laughs> I like that. That's nice. And what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, that you can be human, that you can feel your emotions, you're allowed to be angry, you're allowed to be sad, um, and that what you're doing is enough, um, and that just surviving every day sometimes is all you need to do. Good. And again, I think the irony of so much of what you've gone through, and that is your message, as as I would love to give it's my younger self and for all of us to be able to to feel that way so it's it's interesting that that's pretty universal isn't it yeah it's yeah, great well thank you so so very much for being here and for having this really incredible conversation that is needs amplification and uh i hope it's i hope we get to continue thank you for having me I really hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I've enjoyed interviewing these amazing women and really having a conversation that is so important. See you next time as we talk tough love and the radical views that shape who we are. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Don't forget to download the Just Breathe app, available on all Apple and Android devices. And for easy updates for what's coming up in the community, follow us on Instagram at Just Breathe or online at JustBreatheProject.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and see you next time.